today on the Emulsion Podcast in an unprecedented move. We're actually going to cover more news stories than we have ever before. We're chatting Noma 2.0, Michelin in Italy 2018, food delivery failing in D.C., Australian restaurants expanding to Los Angeles, David Chang in the Olympics, a bar all about Star Wars, modernist cuisine bread, and can you believe it, even more. Coming up. Welcome back to the show, folks. My name is Justin Kana, and in this episode 40 of The Emulsion, we've, we've made it to episode 40, a show where I talk all about the news stories that matter to me as I navigate my career as a professional chef. Thank you so much for joining in. It always happens. Every single time I have an interview show, the next week is always packed with news stories. That is definitely great for you. You get all caught up if you haven't gotten a chance to check out the episode last week that I did with Chef Bella Sangar. Definitely a lot of lot of interesting tidbits in that in that episode. If you haven't gotten a ch- chance to check that out yet, I definitely recommend you do that. But this week is a doozy, and we're going to get right into it into a second. Uh, but first, if you aren't already subscribed to my email newsletter, you're definitely missing out. This week is going to be especially amazing because I'm going to be giving you tons of incredible Black Friday deals that I'm going to kind of scour the internet for myself, saving you all of that time. And that's going to get delivered straight into your inbox, hopefully on Thursday. Maybe I can recommend Thursday, maybe Friday, but also I send you all of the articles that I cover in this show on you there, so you can conveniently kind of just decide which story you'd kind of like to read, cherry pick those. So if that's something that you're interested in getting into your inbox once per week, I would love for you to check that out on justincana.com. If you just spend a couple of seconds on that page, a handy dandy little pop-up will magically appear. Just drop your email address in there, hit send it, and you will be on the list. Also, a quickie update, we've got a Patreon-exclusive live stream today at 2 p.m. Pacific time. That's in just a few hours. If you're interested in jumping in on that and hang out with me one-on-one, kind of an ask-me-anything kind of dealio, I would love to see you there. Patreon is a platform where you get to support me uh, making what I'm making for as little as $1 per month. We are shooting for a 1,000 of us on that platform. If you want to be one of those amazing folks, please check out patreon.com slash justincana. You will not be disappointed, and you can come hang out at 2 and ask me whatever your heart desires. Last time, we uh, we butchered a fish together on that live stream. We'll see what happens today. So let's get into these stories. There, There's so many. Where do I start? Uh, the first one comes out of the United Arab Emirates, a country that's already got... Uh, it's its own problems. Apparently, millions of people there live off of uh, desalinated ocean water. I didn't know that, but they're 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 good at solving those problems, and I, it's because they're in a desert that this whole thing is happening. They are currently in the process of figuring out how to grow fruits and vegetables on Mars. They are at least, and this is super interesting to me because again, they 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 are in the desert. They 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 are experts on harsh growing conditions, attempting to grow lettuce, apparently tomatoes, strawberries, and dates. How much does all this cost for them? $5.5 billion. That is with a B. And part of that is the Mars Science Center that is near Dubai, making one of Earth's biggest interplanetary projects, is what this entire science center is is accomplishing. Two million square feet. That facility alone is going to cost $150 million, and that's all for this research that is going to be put forward and making it so that if and when we do get to Mars, we can eat. We can eat something and not have to spend money to ship it from Earth. We can grow our own stuff. 
And what it basically looks like, if you look at the concept art for it, this science center, it looks like a bunch of domes with a bunch of living facilities and laboratories and agricultural centers. And this is all to kind of simulate what we would build on Mars ourselves, essentially a kind of measure twice, cut once maneuver with all these things. They took a place with conditions as close to Mars as possible, and they're attempting to learn as much as they can to make sure that when we do arrive on Mars again, we have something to eat. So my question is, have they accounted for all the other problems that come with Mars? <laughs> like, just the desert itself is is really not that difficult to, to wrap your head around. Maybe. I mean, again, I'm no scientist, but there are still tons of asteroids that hit Mars pretty regularly. And the storms are really, really bad there. I'm not sure giant glass balls are the best choice. But again, it's 100% not my money. And I've just come to the realization that by the time space travel becomes a thing that's actually like consumer focused here on earth i will probably be planning a holiday there if i if i get to that point in my life will i cook there yeah probably i'd love to say that i cooked on two planets before i die but that's just one of those things that if you told me when when i was a kid that it would be possible to cook on mars i just i'd probably call you a liar liar but i mean i don't care if i'm 68 or 72 or 91 years old when it happens if i can make an omelet on mars and garnish it with a martian sprig of parsley i would be all about it Next up is a ridiculous story, uh, but before we get into it, I actually want to do today's beverage because I didn't talk about it yet. Um, OJ, there's only a little bit left, um, and it's in a Washington State glass. Um, I had my coffee this morning. I've been up for quite a long time, actually, but I needed a blood sugar boost, and that's actually what they tell you. Uh, that's why they give you um, juice at the blood center because it's the easiest shot of blood sugar you can get give yourself. So, as I was saying, next up is a ridiculous story, but I wanted to cover it because it's something we've seen before, and I'm thinking we might just actually see more of it. I might be quoting myself a little bit too early, but I'm calling it now. Tiffany, Tiffany & Co., the luxury brand, the luxury jewelry brand, has a new restaurant. So, they've taken some inspiration from the iconic movie Breakfast at Tiffany's, and they've got a new restaurant now. It overlooks Central Park. It's on the fourth floor of a building in New York City. And it's got some pretty bad reviews so far. Uh, quote, unquote, the menu is dot, 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 boring. Breakfast at Tiffany's breakfast starts at $29. That offering comes with coffee or tea, followed by a croissant and a seasonal fruit and rounded out with your choice of buttermilk waffle, smoked salmon, uh, and bagel stack, truffle eggs, or avocado toast. The prefi lunch, which includes a starter, a main course, like the Fifth Avenue salad with main lobster, grapefruit, and poppy seed dressing, and an olive oil poached salmon with caviar and smashed potatoes, that costs $39. There's also a $5 espresso and a tea service that costs $49. Apparently, there's also a pretty hefty wait due to all of the hype. Uh, I believe it opened last week, but between 40 minutes and two hours is the wait time for it right now. But you get a lot of that paired with uh, quote-unquote everyday objects that Tiffany's paired with it. So the entire restaurant's decor is focused on that kind of robin blue Tiffany's color. So there's a hundred, there's a $1,500 coffee can, a $250 pencil sharpener, and a $10,000 bird's nest. I don't really know exactly what that means. But the entire experience is also meant to feel like you're in that box itself. When they were designing the space, they wanted everything to signify that Tiffany & Co. brand. Uh, everything is colored in that robin egg blue. And my takeaway from all of this is as follows. Of course. Of course everything's overpriced. I mean, maybe even accurately priced, right? Like, this is a multi-million dollar company opening a restaurant in New York City. They probably came at it from a very, like, 
financially sound perspective and realize that they can't make money on a $2.50 shot of espresso, so it's $5. And they can't make money on a $15 breakfast, so they made it $39. And honestly, I feel like we aren't that far away, and this is me kind of maybe predicting the future here as best I can, is that I don't feel like we're that far away from a lot of this happening to more and more brands, right? So look at it from this way. Food brings people together. There's no I mean, you can argue that for, for, for a little while, but at a certain aspect, food brings people together. It's, it's, it's something that every single human uh, does, and it, it is a very human experience. It's super underrated as a lot of the interacting that we do with these brands moves more and more and more online. The idea of bringing people into the space to interact with your brand and your product is super attractive to these big brands. And if we as chefs can provide that service to these brands and do what we do, I see it as a win-win for everyone involved. Uh, you guys, that, you guys that follow me closely know I've personally done events for brands like Kitten Ace and Leica and Bungie. It's super, super powerful, and it, it's it's a clear value exchange, right? It totally makes sense. You'd actually probably be surprised or even disappointed if it was a like stunningly amazing meal or if it was cheap to go eat inside of Tiffany's restaurant because that's incredibly off-brand for them. They don't want to be known for serving like cheap breakfast sandwiches or anything like that. They want to be that luxury brand, so... Again, back to my my reaction, of course. Can we stop talking about Tiffany's now? Ooh, restaurant awards time. It's that season, the end of the year. Uh, Eater's Bill Addison spent all year traveling around this U.S. of A, deciding what spots he was going to deem is quote-unquote essential for the year. He just published his list, and they select 38 different places. That's, for some reason, Eater's number. They actually included some nice changes since the first uh, list in 2015. They included a Hall of Fame category to restaurants that have been on the list since day one. So that will be uh, their three years running. There's 18 newcomers for 2017. We are also currently in a huge boom of restaurants, so they seem to kind of spring up faster than I can even cover them on this show. But let's talk really quickly about how he comes to these conclusions, because I think that's super important to keep in mind whenever you're talking about restaurant awards. So... When he does this big tour that he does, it includes 32 weeks of travel, 500 different meals in 36 different cities. He says, quote, these, place don't, these places don't just exemplify culinary excellence. They foster hospitality and pleasure and purpose in their communities. Among these national essentials, there are some decade-old classics, while others represent the front lines of culinary thinking and emerging cuisines, though all must be 18 months old to qualify. So again, he is covering these amazing uh, new restaurants, but they have to be open for a certain amount of time. He's not just uh, the, the he's not going to cover these flash in a pan style restaurants. So to take a creep at the link in the show notes, if you want the full list, I'm just going to give a rundown of the uh, Hall of Famers and some of the stickouts that I thought were uh, interesting. So some of the Hall of Famers, Alinea. Uh, Bennu in California, Blue Hill at Stone Barns, Eventide Oyster in Portland, Maine, Frasca Food and Wine in Boulder, Colorado, Kachka in Portland, which I had a meal at a couple months ago, amazing, Publican in Chicago, uh, Prince's Hot Chicken, Pools Downtown Diner, and Zahav in uh, Philadelphia. So those were the Hall of Famers, places who have been on the list for three years or more. Really, really interesting to see uh, those places stick it out again. Uh, that is more or less the, also the restaurant of the year was this place called the gray in Savannah, Georgia, and everything else is alphabetical by the way that they, they list it. So that is eaters 38 list. Like I mentioned, I had a great meal at, um, actually they're, uh, one of the newcomers on the list. It's called Bateau. Uh, that's just down the street from my house. It is a, uh, steak, 
house, more or less. And the way that they do that is the restaurant butchers whole cows, dry ages its own steak, and offers two dozen cuts that they write on chalkboards. And then you kind of point at a cut and you say, I want that one. And then they tell you, they ask you how you want it cooked. And that's more or less the experience. Comes with a bunch of different sides. There's a bunch of amazing cocktails. The wine list is really, really good. So I had a great uh, experience there. The other night I shot a video for it. It's going to get edited into a unique kind of food movie. I'm super excited for you to see that later this week. But as per usual for me with Eater, I really respect Bill's opinion. He's not too fancy, which is nice. And I have friends who work at Eater that have told me that he is not too fancy. He's very, very nerdy with his food, which is great to see in a, a, a food reviewer. He kind of explores all ends of the spectrum, right? Where you were talking about like oyster places and diners and dumpling shops and barbecue places, as well as places like Bennu and Alinea all on the same list, which to me is super, super interesting. So I use Eater pretty frequently when I'm in a new city. So this is always a nice list to have around. Next up in Oh My Goodness My Childhood news, Molto Mario is getting a reboot. Does anybody remember that show? For those of you that don't know, Molto Mario was a show where Mario Batali would sit on camera and he would uh, sit at the stove and he had three people that would sit at a counter and they were always different celebrities or authors or actors or artists or really just really interesting people and he would uh, stand there and just cook for people uh, and then get their comments on it like the the, the article actually links up a uh, episode with Jake Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal uh, so he would have these people that would uh, it was a very very similar concept to uh, not just the Emerald Live show, but it was more pop culture focused. It was more current events focused where he would have, oh, you have a movie coming out? Come on Molto Mario and sit here and we'll talk a little bit about the movie. I'll make you like a, an amazing Italian dish. It was really, really interesting, but it was one of the shows that I frequently watched growing up on the Food Network. And apparently it's not going to be a huge reboot. They're only getting six new episodes, but way back in 2004 is when that show was a thing. They did 75 episodes of that show multiplied by three guests per show. That was a lot of exposure, but uh, airing on Food Network, if you want to check out a sample of an episode, again, that is linked up in the article. Otherwise, search Molto Fan on YouTube. That is a channel that just republishes all these videos. Uh, and I got to say, the format definitely inspired me uh, in a lot of ways to cook in front of people, to kind of teach people, to interact with people, all using food as that medium. It was definitely a unique show that I'm super, super psyched to see coming back. But to me, what's crazy is that they're sticking to the TV format right? Isn't that weird? It's super unfortunate, and I think it's such a missed opportunity with the internet being the way that it is. I'm really, really sad to see that they didn't revamp it for either YouTube or Twitch or even like Facebook with the potential that they had to kind of use other people's chat channels to cross-promote and do collaborations. I really, really fear that they missed a huge opportunity just keeping it on TV and with the Food Network. No doubt there was some sort of financial incentive involved, but we'll have to see what they do to kind of promote it online. But regardless, I'm excited to see who the guests are and how Mario manages to execute in 2017 as opposed to 2004. Like, they could take all of this inspiration from um, Stephen Colbert and uh, SNL and all of these places that, uh, yes, they do do their stuff on TV, but then they make unique segments that will go and publish themselves on the internet, and a lot of times they get more views on the internet than they will on actual TV, but those are just my thoughts. Next up, and a story you know I had to cover, there's a Star Wars-themed bar in New York City. It is a pop-up called Dark Side Bar. It is in Soho in New York City right now, and from now until January 14th, they are offering a quote-unquote truly immersive galactic experience. 
They are apparently hosting nightly events and parties such as themed dance and DJ nights, trivia, speed dating, and games. You can do all of that at this dark side bar. Costumes are highly encouraged, which I think is awesome, although it is quote-unquote not necessary. They uh, offer six custom cocktails, all with playful names, so Red Force, Blue Force, the Imperial, the Dark Side, the Galaxy, and the Mind Trick. It is apparently not just in New York City. They're doing it in D.C. and L.A. as well. Tickets, how you get in, is you buy a ticket, and it costs you 33 bucks. That includes two of those drinks that I just mentioned earlier, or you can walk in off the street and you just pay 40 bucks a person, so that's $20 a cocktail which isn't probably far that far off from New York City prices. But go ahead and check out the link if you want, or if any of you are in New York City, I highly encourage you to check it out and let me know so I can live vicariously through you. I know I've definitely got my Last Jedi tickets purchased, ready to go for opening night. I shared the trailer for that a few weeks ago as my non-industry story. So, of course, hugely anticipated event for me. Ah, I love Star Wars. So, we've already talked through themed restaurants, from Star Wars to Breakfast at Tiffany's, Eaters 38 for this year, and new Mario Batali TV shows. It's a crazy time to be alive. We're only a, a, a portion of the way through the show. Next up is a story I didn't think I was going to like, but I actually ended up enjoying it. it but I'm not going to go that deep into it for three reasons. One, because I feel like it's one of those pieces that is a great profile, and if you 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 kind of need to read it for yourself to get the entire story. It's one of those where I, if I wanted to cover it, I would just be regurgitating the story and reading you guys quotes. Two, it seems to be a passion project for the author, Dania Evans. Um it's a long article. It is a really, really long article. And third, because I'm super scared to pronounce the chef's last name that she's covering. <laughs> it is uh, Angela Dimayuga is the name of the chef. She is Filipino-American, and she has been a huge architect, behind-the-scenes chef for Mission, Mission Chinese Food. And the title of the article is Angela Dimayuga is here from the future to save us all. So the punchline if you aren't really interested in reading the entire thing, it is very similar to my story, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to cover it. A lot of it talks about her time in the industry, helping to build what her and Danny Bowen have built, but it ends up talking about her next moves at the end of the article, and that's what really struck me, right? She has all this exposure. She was on uh, IvankaTrump.com as an interviewee, as a like female entrepreneur interviewee. Uh, she basically became famous, and it was the perfect setup for her to open a restaurant empire, and she's turning it down in favor for building a community. She says, quote, As a kid, I didn't ever say I want to be a James Beard award-winning chef. I'm definitely from a new generation. These empire builders who have had these globally expansive brands who are always building, always building, always building, I didn't really relate to any of that. For me, there has always been this internal community-based aspect to all of this, end quote. So again, I recommend you check out the full article if you're interested, but if you listen to this podcast and you don't want to go through the clicks to find this article um, or any of the stories that I cover, please visit justinconnor.com, sign up to my email list. I'll send you these straight to your inbox so you can read them on your own time. But this is my question of the day to you folks. Do you have ambitions to own a restaurant empire someday? I would love for you to hit me up on Twitter and 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 or, or Anchor or in the YouTube comments and tell me. Um, Again, it, it, I want to know. I want to, like, tell me yes or no, and then tell me the whys, right? That's where I think the meat of this conversation comes. If you want to build a restaurant empire, yes or no, and then why? I'll go first. For me, it's a no, uh, at least not right now. There's something that rubs me the wrong way about having my name on the door of a restaurant, but I'm not there cooking at that restaurant, right? It, it, it's To me, it's a little bit misleading. As long as I go by Chef Justin Kana every single time you buy a ticket or come to an event that has that in the title, I will be cooking. That's just how it's going to be. And that's just binary for me. I mean, I made that decision when I 
kind of left the restaurant in Europe. And now that I'm here, that's exactly how I'm going to run every single thing that I do. But as, as I get older, I'm very aware that I'm not going to be able to cook everything and I'm not going to be able to cook forever. But when that time comes, I would like to change my title to restaurateur and former chef Justin Kana. If that is something where I decide to do multiple restaurants or start investing or any, any anything like that, because I have no problem with that, right? I don't get the ego boost from calling myself a chef, but for now, in this time of my life, I cook everything and that's exactly what I want. So that's why I call myself self a chef. But again, I want your thoughts. So please, please, please hit me up, will ya? Oh man, this is an interesting story. Lume, the restaurant out of Melbourne that has gotten some pretty amazing acclaim over the past few years, just announced a second location in LA. It is apparently going to be called Lume Los Angeles, which scares me a little bit because we've seen this happen before and it hasn't worked out so great. I look at the people who have done it successfully, right? I think about David Chang and uh, Siobo and Thomas Keller with Per Se. It's hard to take the name, the same brand and uproot it and plant it somewhere else, right? If you're attempting to serve the same food maybe that makes sense and again I hate to say anything good or bad about a restaurant before I've experienced it so I'm sorry if this is a little unarticulated but maybe maybe they're taking inspiration from Noma right like Noma Japan Noma Mexico they're doing Lume LA and it's going to be just that where they kind of take a lot of the philosophies and use California products to make it and I'm curious to see what happens this is definitely going to be one to kind of keep an eye out for um with the amount of amazing stuff happening in LA I would be surprised to see uh Michelin give its guide back in the next 24 months. Again, this is my uh this is this is going to be called the Nostradamus episode because I'm 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 calling things before we see them. Uh uh sorry, I'm replying to some comments on YouTube right now. Uh food truck. Um but for for all the Australian fam here on the podcast, what are your thoughts on Lume's uh, second location? Do you have any details that you can share? I'd be really, really interested, so let me know. And again, I'm calling it first. LA will get their Michelin Guide back in the next 24 months. Those are my thoughts. Next up in chef personality news, David Chang is going to be on the NBC Sports Crew as a as a special correspondent to the South Korea Winter Olympics happening in February. First of all, do you guys did you guys actually remember that the Olympics were in February? I definitely forgot. So sorry. Sorry, Olympic people. But to me, this is fascinating, right? Because it does two things. It plants chefs as an authority on discovering food, especially talking about specialization in culture. Uh, but this has this has been years in the making for David Chang, right? He definitely didn't set out to build Momofuku just to be kind of on NBC for the Olympics, but all that education and specialization that he put into highlighting Korean tradition and making that his brand, that makes him the natural choice for NBC to choose when they need someone to talk all about the traditions and food in this place with kind of a completely different culture here than here in the US, right? You go to South Korea as an American and there's all these food flavors that you never had and people's lifestyles are different. So I don't really have that much more to say here. I just want to make sure that when you get double caught off guard in February where you're like, oh, it's the Olympics. And then, oh, what is David Chang doing on TV for the Olympics? Now you know. You got it. You you, you hopefully heard it here first. 
Uh, quickie uh, Michelin news bit for you. The guide came out in 2018 for Italy this week. I have never actually been. I'm going in January. Maybe some of you saw on Twitter when I announced I'm going to Paris, but this is also a little insider scoop. I'm also going to Italy. I have a table at Austria Francescana with two of my best friends and my girlfriend. We're going to be a four top, so I'm super pumped for that. But the guide just dropped for Italy, and there's a new three-star restaurant three-star restaurant in the world, uh, St. Hubertus in the northern mountain town of San Cassiano, joins eight other restaurants in the top spot for Italy. Uh, it is, you know, the typical Michelin kind of news. They are highlighting younger chefs. Uh, a lot of the chefs on the list are under 35. People aren't super happy about uh, representing females. Not enough, uh, as per usual. There's actually 356 starred restaurants in Italy now, which is massive to me. I can't even believe that. But uh, I'm definitely interested to experience some of them in January, but bravo, bravo to everyone who was awarded this year. That is more or less all I have to say about this edition of Michelin. Next up, in a story Joshua, one of my besties on Patreon, sent me. There is a new cookbook on Kickstarter, and it's called The Great British Chef's Cookbook. Seven years in the making, it is. it has 4,500 recipes from 150 of Great Britain's best chefs, plus a ton of articles and photos and how-to videos. They're building a community around great food. They're clearly doing it right. They had a $79,000 goal, and they've already hit $105,000, so it's already completely funded. It's going to happen. There's still 13 days left to go, and over 2,000 people have backed it. So will I get it? Probably not. I think a lot of these uh, are marketed towards the gung-ho high-end home cook. There's no doubt... uh, some value to be gained from us professionals in some way, shape, or form. But what stands out to me is the community that they've managed to build. They have over a million followers on all of their different platforms. Um, You can actually pledge just 12 pounds, 12 British pounds on Kickstarter right now and get a digital copy of the book or 20 pounds and get the book in full as a hardcover edition. So if that's uh, something you're interested in, the link is still live, like I said, for 13 more days. So I recommend you check that out. The photos look great. The dishes are obviously wide ranging as the UK has kind of become a great melting pot from people all over the world. Will you be getting the book? I'd be curious to know. Definitely let me me know in the comments. I'm currently in the process of purging my cookbook shelf myself. Uh, shout out to everyone who liked and commented on Facebook, the video that I just posted um, on my personal Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash Mr. Justin Kana. Every single time you do that, that counts as an entry to win uh, this book. Where is it? It's here. You get to win this book that I'm giving away today in a Patreon live stream. It is. Oh, yeah. There you can see it. Um, so that's going to get given away today. That is Le Livre Blanc by Anne-Sophie Pick. I just posted my review of that bad boy on Patreon. If you'd like to win that very same copy, it is absolutely free to enter. Again, just head over to my Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash Mr. Justin Kana. Like and comment on the latest video I just posted and you're entered. I will be announcing that in just a few hours on Patreon. I was going to say my loss is your gain, but that's really just a win-win all around. And that's why I love this entire cookbook club concept. Next up, and a story I covered a little in my newsletter this week, Modernist Cuisine, actually one of the neighbors uh, here down the road, they are based here in Seattle, they just released their newest book, Modernist Bread. So it is also five volumes, uh, very similar to the original Modernist Cuisine, and it goes deep into the science and ingredients and methods behind that elusive but ever so tasty food called bread. It expands all cultures, right? They did a DIY uh, tandoori oven with $300 worth of materials from Home Depot, and they got all the best ovens and all the best kind of like fermentation materials and scales and 
experimented with a bunch of different kinds of flour, but it is classic modernist cuisine, right? The things that we've been known uh, to enjoy from that brand. Beautiful photos, easy to follow recipes, a super large price tag, but I don't think I'll be picking this one up, even though I have all my notes still from the weeks that I spent with the first modernist cuisine. I would literally go to the library every day after class for just over a month, and I, I read the entire thing uh, cover to cover, but I am not sure I'm in a place where I can go that deep into a concept like bread quite yet. I would need a few, basically my needs is a few solid bread recipes that are kind of flexible that I can use in different situations. I have no doubt that the science is, of course, the most important principle to know, but bread for me is one of those things that you need to kind of learn by screwing up and then, uh, learning how to fix things. It's very tactile, right? The best bakers, at least to me that I've seen, can just look at a piece of dough and tell you that it's ready or, or, or touch it and tell you that it's ready. So to me, the value there uh, is the experience as opposed to some of the kind of like fluid gel recipes or spherification techniques that were in, in modernist cuisine in the, in, in, the, in the back. Amanda says, all of the bread, I just need a library to buy it for me. That is that is true. That, that That's what you need to do. You need to find a library that will have it in stock and you can just go check it out or go in and take your notes and then go home. Uh, a huge change though with this book and something that I'm excited to see uh, do so well is from Francisco Magoya. He is actually the, sh uh, the head chef now at Modernist Cuisine. He took over after the first Modernist Cuisine came out and he has been there the entire time kind of pioneering the bread book, the bread series. Uh, and he's doing great. He's gotten amazing feedback. He's been kind of the face of this entire project. He was actually teaching at the Culinary Institute of America when I was a student there. We're uh, actually reading his Elements of Dessert book next in the Cookbook Club, but huge props to him uh, for sure for doing an amazing cookbook launch. I'm stoked to see if they end up doing a bread tasting menu dinner. I'd be 3,000 percent down to do that. I know that they, they they did that when Modernist came out. They would do tasting menus out of their space uh, with some of the recipes from the book. So if they do do a bread, a bread tasting menu dinner, I would be super down to experience that. Oh man, next up is a business story. We're going to talk business and more specifically the food delivery business coming from a publication called DC Eno, specifically from, uh, it's, it's a guest post from a lady named Sarah Vandell. She is the CEO of a DC area food delivery startup. And in the article, she talks all about the nine semi-disruptive uh, nature things you need to be paying attention to when uh, talking about uh, food delivery businesses. And I lost the link, so I'm going to quickly pull that up again. Let's see, where are we? Uh, boop. Um, so she talks all about food delivery is ripe for disruption despite the notable failures. Food is not a winner-take-all category. Um, talking about how people will either, you know, are amazing successes or total crashes. There's no kind of like you exit at like a $453 million valuation and you sell to Google, right? It's either amazing, 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 or it just completely like falls flat on its face. Um, food is, uh, the category apparently does not warrant it. At a micro level, winning in food requires the trifecta of capturing stomachs, hearts, and heads of eaters often at war with themselves. I thought that was an interesting quote. Um, it says taking institutional money within the first two years is like taking a bite of an apple. Uh, again, talking about other companies that have uh, raised $12 million and $29 million uh, within their first 12 months of founding. And then their respective paths to a unicorn exit became statistically difficult. Uh, and the lesson there is early VC-backed businesses took money too early. Investors and founders have been wrong in their assumptions. 
uh, talking all about making sure you're serving real food. Um, it, food delivery is now a stale funding category. That's what I thought was super interesting, talking about guilty and pr until proven innocent. The funding market in food delivery has gone dark. The good food investors have fled to consumer packaged goods, and the tech-based investors have fled to tech-based companies for their unicorn outcomes. So it's going to be interesting to see who can survive this, this kind of landscape that's happening right now. Uh, again, talking talking a little bit about uh, my thoughts, I... It's 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 hard for me to give an opinion on this because I don't have a huge uh, stake in the in the in the game. But we'll have to see what happens with the market in general. The entire industry, which I need to remind people, is super new because of how easy it is to kind of play in the field. It's really easy to hire a couple of your buddies and start delivering food from restaurants. But as a restaurant itself, it's also really easy to hire a couple of drivers or get one of these services that already integrates it into their ecosystem to deliver food for you. But it's hard to differentiate and stand out as a competitor because one, you can't compete on price, right? You can't compete on quality. Delivery is literally A to B. It's a very, very simple job. And you need to have a substantial market share to actually have reliable revenue, right? And it's super interesting to see all of this happen so quickly. But to me, where it gets interesting is when we start seeing drones and self-driving cars get into the mix. Then what? So speaking of self-driving cars, that is an amazing transition into the non-industry story of the week. I'm sure a lot of you have seen this already. Tesla just announced its self-driving semi-truck. It looks literally like a space semi. And at the end of this presentation, the, they whipped open the trailer and the new Roadster screamed out of it. If you haven't seen the stats on it, it is a $200,000 car slated to drop in 2020 with specs that rival million dollar supercars. It's crazy. Like 0 to 60 in 1.9 seconds, a 250 mile an hour top speed and a 620 mile battery range. And it comes in freaking red. It is also a hard top convertible. I'm not even a car guy, but I was stoked when I saw this thing. I don't even need to buy one. I don't even have like a desire to buy one. I just want to ride in it someday or even just rent one for the day. So bravo to an amazing company. I'm definitely following very, very closely. Tesla is super interesting to me. So with that, this has been episode 40 of The Emulsion. Thank you so, so much for listening. Just a quick little reminder before you take off. If you want to support this or any of the other content I do for as little as $1 per month, that is like less than a bottle of uh, orange juice here, I would love for you to check out my page on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash justincana. There you get a ton of amazing access behind the scenes, gear giveaways, a community of itself. Uh, there, there, There's some amazing questions being asked there that I would love to uh, if you have any expertise or you have any passion about teaching or mentoring, that is a great place to be to help some uh, cooks that are new in their careers, culinary students. Um, again, for as little as $1 a month, that's literally $12 a year. I would sincerely appreciate your support for everyone that's listening that's already supporting. I can't thank you guys enough. Uh, again, I've mentioned it three times now, but I'm, it's really something that I want to build out uh, as we're going forward. I'm in the process of building my email newsletter for you guys. I'm sending this uh, week's edition uh, probably around Thursday or Friday. That's going to have a ton of Black Friday deals as well as all of the articles from this week's show. So if you want in, go ahead and check out my website. That is justincana.com, and we will get you all set up. Um if you have stories you want covered on next week's show, shoot them to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find them. Subscribe if you aren't already here on YouTube or on the podcast. Definitely leave a thumbs up on this video or consider leaving a review on iTunes if you listen there. Regardless of where you are, I really, really appreciate your ears. So thank you. Thank you so much. My name's Justin Kana. Have a good one. <laughs>